We move around 95 million passengers per year. We have around 330 aircraft, so we can move nearly a quarter of a million passengers on a busy day in the summer. So the orchestration, the coordination, the technology required to make all that happen every day is phenomenal. How does a passenger go through the airport where they're not stopped six times to be checked and so they can just walk onto the aircraft? That is the nirvana of aviation and the technology is almost there to make that happen. Whatever strengths or weaknesses you have, you can work with them, but you make sure you have a team around you who can complement you. 50% of my job is running IT. The other 50% is running the business. This is Sierra TV. My name is Hendrik Deckers. I'm here today with Stuart Burrell, who is the Chief Data and Information Officer at EasyJet. A very warm welcome, Stuart. Thank you, Hendrik. Really looking forward to this discussion today. Stuart, you have an engineering degree from the Harriet Watt University in Edinburgh and an MBA of the uh, Warwick University in Coventry. You started your career more than 24 years ago uh, building car factories uh, for Nissan. You worked in logistics at Kimberly-Clark and PepsiCo, and then you upgraded to IT. And you've been a CIO uh, after that for Echo Brands, for Gatwick Airport, for McLaren, for Heathrow Airport. And now since the end of 2020, you're the Chief Data and Information Officer at EasyJet. So, Stuart, Tell us a bit more about your journey. I mean, what's the background and how did you arrive in this position? Um, well, it's been a fascinating journey and not one that I expected, to be honest. Um, mm -hmm. And I think I, I, the, the common theme through all of uh, this is uh, finding a, ro a role and a job and a company that I've enjoyed um, right from my early days of building factories. Um, it's always been something new and innovative. It's been different. Nissan back in the 1980s, it was the first big Japanese factory in Europe. And to this day, it's still a, a leading, uh, leading exponent of how you do manufacturing really well. And all the way through Kimberly-Clark, through uh, the other companies, it's always been something new. And I guess that was part of moving into IT. When I was at uh, Pepsi, as part of the Walker's Crisps uh, world, um, spent 12 years there, but that's when I you say upgraded, um, so <laughs> others may describe it. I, I used to have a, a proper job, then I moved into IT. I used to build things and build factories. Um, and that has been my legacy. Um, I, I used to really bore my kids driving across the country because I would point out the factories that I built or set up or run um, in, in my career. Um, but it's been mm -hmm. fascinating. And moving into IT has really opened my eyes, really allowed me to see across different businesses uh, and the way businesses are run. And that's a bit that I really enjoy. Um, I can make a big impact on businesses, uh, how they're run on, and for the people who operate in them. So yeah, it's uh, been fascinating and I've enjoyed pretty much every minute of it. Yeah, and some super companies, eh? Etro, Gatwick, McLaren, and so on. Uh, quite impressive. So let's talk a bit about EasyJet. I mean, it's it's a bit of a household brand, of course. Yeah. Many uh, people know the, the the name and the company. But tell us a bit more. Give us some facts. Give us some context of the company, please. Well, EasyJet is 25 years old. Um, it mm -hmm. uh, it's around six six billion pounds, seven billion euros 
revenue, or it was in 2019 before COVID hit, uh, we mm -hmm. move around 95 million passengers per year. We have around 330 aircraft um, and we're 1,500 flights a day on a busy day. So we can move nearly a quarter of a million passengers on a, on a busy day in the summer. So the operational intensity of an organisation like this is phenomenal. Uh, it's a very tight schedule, very tight turnarounds, very dependent on its uh, 14, 15,000 staff, the cabin crew, the engineers, plus then all the ground handling uh, around us. So the, the orchestration, the coordination, the technology required to make all that happen every day is phenomenal. Okay, and what makes EasyJet different from, from, from other airline companies? There's a couple of things I think make EasyJet different. Um, one is the culture. Um, it started mm -hmm. as a challenger. I mean, you think when it started, it was back in the days when you had British Airways, Lufthansa, Air France. So you had the big dominant uh, national air carriers and they just didn't believe that you could do low cost uh, air, uh, air travel. And so it's always been a challenger. It's always been a fighter. It's always trying to do something different. And it done, it done that really in its technology and how it was engaging with the customer and how it was using technology to cut costs, how it was doing it to give a much better experience uh, for the passenger and really open it up to the wider public. So that spirit and that culture really is, uh, makes it stand out. It's, a, it's, a, it's still a challenger. Even though we're 20, 25 years old, it is still a challenger and still challenging the industry. How we yeah. set up information and how we process that. We took conscious decisions back in the early days um, which, to do it differently to the big guys and to make sure it was much leaner, simpler, take away a lot of the complexity that sits behind the scenes of the big, air, uh, the big carriers and set up very focused uh, operations. And that's, uh, so I think that really is uh, that spirit and the how we do things really makes it stand out. Yeah. So EasyJet has always been on the forefront of, of, of innovation and still you were hired, you were brought in to make a change. So, so what are the, the big changes that you are now implementing at, uh, at EasyJet? Well, just because we're uh, being advanced on technology, technology constantly moves and the world moves on as well. And I think where we've got to is uh, we need to re re renew the company. Uh, and I've been brought in to help do that. We're looking at replatforming our full commercial system. So the bookings engine, the websites, how we handle uh, the customer data, the whole technology stack supporting that passenger journey needs renewing. Uh, we need to stay in front of the competition. We need to keep giving our customers a great experience. We need to make sure our costs are some of the best in the industry. And we need to keep attracting those customers so that our crew, our staff, the frontline uh, teams who are facing the customers every day, that they have the information, they, they have the tools to enable them to give great customer service that EasyJet passengers really have come to expect. Okay, so EasyJet, you need to make sure that you're not disrupted yourself like you disrupted the, the, the industry uh, decades Absolutely. ago. Absolutely. Absolutely. There is okay. so, it's so easy now to start up an airline. Um, there were some statistics a few weeks ago that there's something like 40 or 50 new airlines started up around the world in the past year wow. during COVID. Um, you can start, start up a new airline really in a matter of months. You can buy most of these systems off the shelf, software as a service, cloud services. 
Um, and so it's easy and relatively low, low cost. The barriers to entry are really low for anybody wanting to start up. So as an incumbent uh, provider, we have to really be in front of that competition. We have to give the customers a better service with the confidence and information to fly, particularly in these uh, troubled times with COVID. Um, passengers are really looking for that assurance and comfort and support while they are traveling. So you say EasyJet is a combination of being very cost conscious, very cost driven, mm -hmm. and at the same time providing an, an excellent customer service, right? Yes. So let's talk about these aspects maybe. So what does it mean to be very cost driven to, and, 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 and how do you implement and how do you improve that in, in this organization? And a company like EasyJet is getting the balance between doing something which is of value versus doing it cheap. You know, you do technology cheap, it comes back and bites you. But what you can't do is waste money or do things necessarily gold-plated. So you have to, I guess, take conscious decisions around make versus buy. We have a really great mm -hmm. team of technologists and developers and engineers within, within my team. So we know we can build certain things, but other times it's better to go and buy something off the shelf. And so as the products off the shelf uh, mature is sometimes better going down that route. We took a conscious decision 20 years ago to build our own uh, uh, passenger service system, the booking system, because you couldn't buy anything at a reasonable cost. So I think it, it was buying the products, buying the technology that really makes sense and developing your own where it really makes a difference to the passenger or to your uh, direct costs and making sure there's a constant balance in there because it still comes down to what does a customer experience look like? You know, and mobile app has won many awards because it's innovation, the experience and the way it works, but it needs updating. Mm -hmm. And so you can't stand back and just let something, uh, technology sit there. It needs constant refresh, yeah. but not wasting money and really focusing on the areas that make a difference. So you say that, I mean, the, the systems available, the, uh, the, the systems that you can buy, the SaaS systems and so on, and they have matured immensely compared to 10, 20 years ago. So, so how do you decide if you re-platform, if you build a new reservation system, how do you decide if you, if you make or you build or, or you buy? That's a really good question and we're going through that as we speak. Um, we've looked at, do we buy something off the shelf? Uh, and there are several PSS uh, the, the passenger service systems, you can buy some of them off the shelf. Some of the big national carriers or low-cost guys, they all have them. Or we have our own, which needs some uh, major TLC, major uh, refresh. But that is a, we're doing that cost analysis and benefits analysis. And what's, what's going to drive us now for the next 10 years? So how innovative do we want to be versus going with what is industry standard? Um, can we uh, generate innovation and value and customer experience, which is better than you can generate uh, using an industry platform? And that's a debate we're yeah. going over. And it's the cost, it's the benefits, it's the experience. Um, and it's really trying to look forward 10 years because these things, it's a bit like uh, many of the, the audience will be very familiar with the big ERPs in the back office. What I'm talking about is an aviation version of an ERP. You put it in yeah. and that's it for 10 years, 15 years before you make another change. So it's a big decision and it's not something we'll take lightly and it won't be something we do quickly. 
um, we'll take our time to make sure what we do is the right thing for EasyJet for the for the next generation of passengers coming out of uh, out of this pandemic. Mm -hmm. So that's on the, the being cost driven and and your I mean very strategic decision there if you're going to buy mm -hmm. or build. Uh, that's going to be an interesting one. Let's talk about customer service and, 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 and serving, creating the best customer experience. So what's the role? How do you see the role of, of, uh, of, of IT and digital in that? Well, it's fundamental now in uh, the passenger experience. And aviation mm -hmm. passengers are really uh, quite mature in their expectations of a digital journey. You know, the, yeah. and it's changing and evolving very rapidly. Uh, we're now talking about the, the COVID passport around Europe. That's a digital identity card. So once you have that, you don't need a passport. And over the last five years, I was even in my previous role at Heathrow and working with IATA and the airlines, we've been looking at digital identity. We actually ran passengers from Heathrow into uh, Washington, D.C., on a purely digital passport 18 months ago, just before COVID hit. It was all put on hold because of COVID. But that technology is now proven, is accepted by both UK and US uh, authorities. It's now a case we need to get into uh, and get that moving. So the world is shifting. And I think the, the role that airlines and IT and technology plays is that the golden uh, nugget that we've always been chasing and for 20 years as an industry is this seamless journey. How does a passenger book a flight, pay for it, arrive at the airport, go through the airport where they're not stopped six times to be checked, drop bags off, open their bags, empty laptops and liquid. How do you get rid of all of that? And so they can just walk onto the aircraft without being stopped. That is the, the, the nirvana of, uh, of aviation. And the technology is almost there to make that happen, where you're booking on the mobile app, you have your digital identity, you're paying using your Apple Pay, Google Pay on your phone. Mm -hmm. now, you, you arrive on your Uber and, uh, and at the airport and you just walk through. The, you can now have uh, uh, your, your facial identity. It knows who you are because the airline knows who you're coming. It's against your digital identity, so you can walk straight through security. There's a new generation of, uh, of X-ray machines, which are in, actually in, in a few airports now around uh, Europe, where you don't take liquids out, you don't take your laptop out, you just drop your bag on the tray, it goes through and it automatically disassembles laptops, anything uh, interesting in that environment. And so you can just walk through. And combining all of these, we actually had a model of that working setup at Heathrow two, three years ago. And so I think mm -hmm. IT is fundamental to make all this happen because stitching together multiple technologies, multiple data sources to give an experience that the passenger, it is impossible, that is, it, I guess it's invisible to the passenger yeah. and it makes it seamless and takes cost out of everybody's, uh, everybody's part of that journey. Um, so it's a really exciting time to be part of this, uh, this environment. Absolutely, very fascinating. I mean, there's this seamless travel experience that sounds uh, very, very exciting. Now, let's talk about uh, innovation. So that means that in EasyJet, you need to innovate a lot. I mean, you not only need to replatform and have your, 
your uh, aviation ERP mm. systems uh, yeah. uh, replatformed, but also means you need to innovate in customer experience and, and so on. Mm. So, so how do you, uh, and, and you mentioned already uh, a culture of innovation that that was it's a bit in the DNA of, of EasyJet, I, uh, yeah. I understood. So let's talk about what is the culture of innovation and how do you make that uh, every time better and better? Well, innovation really, it's interesting because uh, where I've been before, we've sometimes had an innovation team, which is focused on, on doing some of that. I don't have an innovation team specifically, but every one of my teams, uh, they're, they're talking about change, innovation, trying new things. And it's not just in IT, this is across the wider business as well. So we're not having to persuade our commercial team to go and try some new technology or to try the, uh, some different experience. They are coming to us. Mm -hmm. There's a real draw from the wider business to go and try mm -hmm. different things, uh, which is a really great place to be because we're being pulled and we're having to support them and be agile in delivering technologies, solutions, data that doesn't exist or hasn't been there before. And we have to do this very quickly. And again, it's part of that DNA that it's not IT pushing innovation into the company. This is just part of what we do on a day-to-day -day basis. And part of my yeah. role is to make sure that's structured. There's a, an element of oversight to make sure it all integrates with my architects. So you do a bit of innovation. How do we make that sustainable? Again, there's so much innovation that goes on that it's a trial and thrown away. Now, you can fail fast, but some of it needs to stick. And some of it really needs yeah. to stay there long term in your customer experience and in your value chain. Where are you making money or saving money or, what, what, or giving a better customer service? All of this has mm -hmm. to stick. And the way that the role of IT and particularly myself and my architects, is to make sure it's, it, it sits in the architecture and it sits in the environment in a way that the service, my service teams can pick it up and support it and not just forget okay. about it in six months' time. It has to, there has to be a few winners out of that innovation pipeline and innovation trials that, that every company goes through. And could you give a couple of examples of, of, of cool stuff that's happening today and that you're not supposed to talk about, but what's the, what's the cool, innovative <laughs> things at the EasyJet today? Um, I guess there's some really good stuff on the data front. Um, I mean, every airline has a problem at the moment because all of the booking engines and yield management engines, which are all built on historic data models, they don't work. Mm -hmm. Because of COVID, the, the world has shifted. And so the booking behavior of the general public has changed dramatically. So it, how do you maximize? It's not predictable anymore. It is yeah, no longer predictable. Predict. So how do you yeah. predict that? How do you price your seats? How do you maximize yeah. the yield? And so the, we're moving from what typically has been an ML-based world into more of an AI-based world to try and get different feeds and try and get different inputs that says, well, if there's a government announcement, we know next Thursday, uh, potentially in the UK, what is that likely to do to booking uh, curves, uh, booking volumes to what destinations? And so using the AI, looking at, right, what are the scenarios and how might we do this? And so it's, that is a, something very new and very different because the, 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 the teams running that world 
are having to think differently and they're using AI as an augmentation. It's not replacing what they're doing. It's the augmentation and a really advanced way of thinking and helping them to make pretty significant decisions on how the company works. So that's behind the scenes, but it's a really significant issue which every airline is, the whole, uh, I guess, industry uh, is looking at and how do you do it? So that I think we have a real, we have a fantastic team looking at that um, and working with, with across the business. Um, what's some of the other things going on? Um, I guess some of it is really in this, how do we, uh, what does the next generation of mobile app look like? Um, mm -hmm. And that's something that is still early days, but again, getting the teams to think not just what they need to do in six weeks' time, but what does it need to look like next year? Because again, that technology is changing and changing quite rapidly, and there's different ways of doing this. Uh, so it's, look, it's testing and checking stuff now that says in next year we will be in, a, again, leapfrog where some of the other uh, competitors are at the moment, and how do we get that next generation of uh, experience to our customers? Okay, so AI, is going to be more and more important in your business as well then? Yes. Yeah, it's because there's more and more coming through um, in terms of use cases, uh, opportunities for it, and a lot of them we haven't even thought of yet. You know, it's, it's early days. Um, there's yeah. a really big nutty problems that uh, we're going at first. And I'm sure as we learn more, there'll be more and more of it spreads out across the organization. There's opportunities there. Mm -hmm. It's a case of where's the, the right place to invest and when. Yeah. Now, in the preparation of this conversation, you told me that you're also going to a restructuring and, and, and you're implementing a new operating model. Can you, can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, so the operating model is interesting. Again, it's part of this renewal. As we're going to re-platform an organization and a, a different architecture at the business level, mm -hmm. um, what's the right way to organize IT and technology to support that? And really, that's what's the driver. It's not me suddenly coming up with a great idea. It's we have a new yeah. business strategy, um, and therefore, we have to change in how we look after that. So we're going to the model. It's, it's not a unique model. It's, most of the listeners are probably either doing it or thinking about it, and it's about the, prod, the platform and product-based approach, mm -hmm. where some of the underlying platforms are there. That, that's more of your, your base supporting environment and then very agile, very focused, business-focused uh, uh, product teams partly embedded with the business. And we're already doing some of this yeah. in some of the areas already, in our website and mobile world particularly. We're already doing that. And so the teams are already blended between uh, the commercial guys and my technology teams. They're, uh, that's all, but it's not consistent. And I think that's the area where we need to go, is how do we get consistency and efficiency because one team's yeah. doing it, let's use that to really grow the capability and the mindset in the other areas. So it's not so much a big reorganization as much as ways of working. And let's modernize how the whole organization works. And let's step into, uh, the, into that future yeah. world and get ready for the new platforms and get ready for the new technologies that are coming in over the coming years. So 
reorganizing the, the, the company and, and, and IT to work around services, around the products, and, and, and do that in cross-functional teams in an agile way. I mean, that's a big change. Uh, so so how do you look at that process? Are, are you halfway or are you already finished? Or no. <laughs> will you ever be finished in, in, in setting that up? Or? It'll never be finished. It's one of the organizations um, never stand still. Uh, and certainly mm -hmm. in my last role, every six months I had an organizational change. And the first time I'd done it, it was a big shock. Thereafter, every six months, there was some fairly significant shift or change because the business was changing, we were changing. You have to go with the times and go with the flow. And as new solutions come in or new technologies, you, you have to adapt and, uh, and change your organization. And the teams get used to it. I say the first time you come to that, it's it's really big deal. Thereafter, oh yeah, it's another change, move on. And so that's the where I'm trying to get to with EasyJet. So we only started this, we, I mean, we kicked off the review of it probably back in January. We only launched it uh, really a couple of months ago. And so we're working with the pilot teams as we speak, uh, looking at their processes and there's really a, a, how they work with the business. So the biggest focus area is around the interactions. So interactions between that team and the business teams or in between them and the platform teams and the service and support teams. How do, and so I guess documenting that, structuring that in a more formal way so we can then replicate that efficiently across the other teams. We'll invent it once and then we'll copy yeah. that across the wider organisation. So we're very early in this. Um, some of the teams are already doing it. Uh, they have been naturally um, again part of the, the just the the constant flow of change that comes through the place. I just need to get it more consistent and more structured okay. and more efficient, so that we can drive the performance uh, more consistently across uh, uh, over the next few yeah. years. It'll be twelve, eighteen months really until we are in a position where I think we should be, and then it'll just be constantly improving and changing thereafter. Yeah, because that well, I mean that that makes a big big difference, of course. I mean that's a competitive weapon, and 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 absolutely. Is, is there a way for you to benchmark where you are in that journey compared to the big carriers or the other uh, other low cost carriers? Is do you have any view on that? Um, there's not a formal benchmarking. There are, there are benchmarks that we are using on say uh, agile. Uh, teams, you can. There are methodologies and structures to go, and so you can look at yourself um, and the behaviours and ways of working, and you can see that. Mm -hmm. um, other airlines have been some have been doing bits of this uh, for a number of years, uh, and I know, and I've looked at them over the last few years, so I know quite a few of them pretty well. Um, and in some areas we're ahead, in some areas we're behind, but I think we're. The advantage is, um, because I worked for an airport previously, I talked to many airlines. So I got lots of, it's not just one airline. I've seen probably a dozen uh, or so airlines yeah. in the last few years. So I know how many of them are working and I can take the best off. And I've seen what works and I've taken learnings from what doesn't work. And working with some of the good vendors and good partners, uh, making sure we choose people who have a good degree of maturity because uh, again, there's a highly variable level of maturity in the, uh, the system integrators and uh, service partners who built, who support us, and so it's working with the right people um, on and with a similar mindset on where we want to get to. So yeah, I have an advantage. I'm not 
breaking new ground. I'm not in the I'm taking the best of what I've seen, not just from aviation but across other industries as well, and bringing that yeah. uh, broad knowledge into EasyJet to try and get that advantage uh, that, that we need. So we're talking about innovation, we're talking about replatforming, about making sure that the company is competitive. And so we talked about creating the culture, improving the culture around that. We talked about processes and uh, agile way of working. And we already touched on a couple of uh, technologies as well, like AI. Um, now let's, let's talk a bit about cloud as well, because that's of course a, a very, very important uh, technology stack uh, or, or area as well. Where are you today in, in your cloud journey? Um, we're probably two thirds of the way through where I think we should be. Um, so mm -hmm. we have uh, most of our test development environments are in AWS. Um, we have quite a few SaaS based uh, solutions and platform systems out there already. I guess the area is a is this passenger service area where um, the core systems are still in house um, for some good reasons. But as we replatform, um, that is likely to move to the cloud. And part of the challenge with a, I mean our core reservation system, it, it needs it needs to be highly performant. We will fill an aircraft a minute in the January sales. And that's not just 120 book, that's uh, people with bags and sports bags and different times. And di so it's a package of bookings. It's a complex, uh, it's a complex system to take a booking wow. for an aircraft with a life cycle. Mm -hmm. It's actually very close to the, uh, the car configurators that you see uh, when you go to buy your new Mercedes or BMW or whatever, you, you choose your colours and wheels. And, that's what it's like building an, an airline reservation. So filling an aircraft a minute, you need high performance uh, and you need resilience and you need that, that high integrity. And to be fair, the cloud don't yet provide that high availability that or not without extreme cost. Um, so we will go there, but it needs, it needs designing around what the cloud is good for and good at and not necessarily being just let's go to the cloud because we can. It'd be done in a thoughtful, planned, strategic way that makes sense depending on the different systems. We are going more software as a service, we are going more off the shelf, but not necessarily exclusively. The last business topic that I wanted to discuss yeah. with you, uh, Stuart, is, uh, is sustainability. Mm. I mean, uh, being um, what is it, carbon neutral, mm. and, and both in the business and, and in IT. What, what's, the, what's the vision and strategy of EasyJet for that? Um, well, EasyJet is, is one of the first to be uh, carbon neutral. We offset every flight um, and have done for a couple of years now. So it's a big issue for mm -hmm. us. And I think from a technology and IT, there's, there's two different levels to look at. One is how do we run our technology? So that's part of the push to the cloud, particularly on the dev and support uh, world, because we we run uh, elastic uh, capacity. So it automatically scales up, scales down, depending on yep. uh, usage. So it's only using what we absolutely have to use. Um, and, and that's you can't do that when it's all in-house. And that's why we will go to the cloud because of that uh, those advantages over time. And we scale back um, when we can in the data center. So when we're running, depending on which data center we're running in, we've active, active, but we scale down uh, the data centers that are not on full active 
active mode as well. So yeah. there's a real drive to keep the consumption level down. The bigger advantage we have is using our data and using our technology to optimise the efficiency of the airline. So if we can optimise the routes, we can optimise the schedules, making sure we've got uh, uh, the crew, the crewing levels optimised. What are we selling on board? There's no point um, uh, putting bottles of something on an aircraft that no one ever buys. That's just weight and inefficiency. So looking at the data, what is what has been bought on which flights, we're starting to get into, into that now to really manage and optimise return versus uh, the, the carbon impact and really look at minimising that. We're doing a lot of work with the, uh, the airline and the pilots at the moment on their speed, their efficiency, their routing, mm. uh, and you can use that data to point out when they're going too fast, when they could have taken a, more, a better route. There's different ways of running that, which has a big impact both on the carbon, but also on the engineering maintenance. How you run the engines, has, you, if you can delay maintenance on an engine by three months, six months, that, an engine's five million to renovate it. Now, if you can delay that, that's a big, a big deal. So using data in that environment um, and helping to optimise uh, is one of our big challenges and big opportunities that we're working with at the moment. Yeah. Electric airplanes, is that on the agenda yet? When, when can we expect that? Um, 2030. Um, there are already, already? aircraft. Yeah, there are uh, prototype aircraft uh, out there running already. Airbus, I know, have uh, a prototype on the drawing board. It'll be short haul. Um, the hundred seater, mm -hmm. two to three hundred mile, or three to four hundred kilometer uh, journey is a very real prospect by 2030. Um, whether it's powered just purely batteries or with uh, a, a turbine engine powered by ga uh, hydrogen or by sustainable fuels. There's different routes and there's different methods that the, uh, the developers are all looking at, but it's a very real prospect. Um, there are, I say there are now in the US, there are electric uh, private aircraft flying around test. Uh, I'm not sure they're in full commercial use yet, but they're certainly uh, up there working. Um, and in real proof of concept. You've got like so Velocopter, they are real, you can go and buy them now. And uh, they're still going through some certification, but one of my, my ex-colleagues is working with uh, them through one of his company. Um, it's fascinating. Um, they are real and they are coming and it's looking for the use cases that make sense as the technology matures. You're not going to go and replace an A380 um, in the near future, but you could replace yeah some of your short-haul turboprops. You could replace your, uh, some of your commuting uh, capacity into cities. Um, so there's different ways and different use cases which I think will drive yep. technology and efficiency. I can, I can almost hear that you're an engineer, that you're excited <laughs> about this <laughs> new uh, technology <laughs> development. <laughs> Let's talk about how IT and, and, and digital is organized in EasyJet. So you, you said you do uh, uh, 7 billion uh, pounds uh, almost, you have 14,000 staff, uh, hundreds of aircrafts, but still you, you shared with me that your IT and digital team is, is around 250 uh, people. Yes. It is, I mean, it sounds small compared to the 14,000 people in, in total staff, no? Um, it, it is, but we probably have another, what, three to 400 
um, mm -hmm. external partners around the world who support us. Okay. Um, yep. But it's looking at what's important and you focus your teams on the, uh, the, the, what's strategically important to us. And we're in a shift on that. I mean, like most airlines and most of the uh, travel industry and leisure industry, we, we went through tough time last year and we lost about 30% of our team. So it's kind of taking off the internal team. And so shifting how we work, shifting that organisation, but also then engaging with partners much better um, is also part of that organisation. So how do we do that? Where, where do we want to keep our own people really focused? And where do we want to just, you know what, it's off the shelf, it's easy, it's not that important to us. Let's ship it to uh, an offshore location and just run it for half the cost. Um, and there's all there's those balances which uh, we're looking at as we speak. And there's been a lot happening already um, in how we do that. Okay. That's quite a challenge. I mean, losing 30% of, uh, of yeah. your team and now you need to... I can imagine staff up again, or and, and and so what's your strategy? You want to bring all these people, these numbers, back in house, no. or, or this is an opportunity to outsource more? It's an opportunity to. We don't need to outsource that much more. We need to outsource better. Um, so mm -hmm. the, 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 I've made it clear with my team, being very public with them, that uh, the 250 is probably about the right size of organisation uh, for mm -hmm. EasyJet because it allows me to have a really good focused technology teams and support teams, but I can augment that with uh, putting offshore or outside the roles that, you know, what in, either I can buy the knowledge much better externally or is not strategically important to me. There's two different ways of outsourcing and buying that capability. They don't have to be here in Luton at the airport, uh, the headquarters, to do that, and we've proved that through uh, through COVID. So it's, it's designing the services consciously, not just going out, oh, I need three people offshore to do this work. That's a very inefficient way to do outsourcing. It's very much about what service do I need and how do I want that, how do I want to consume that and how do I want to receive that mm -hmm. service. Designing that consciously and then contracting with it and holding the partners to account. You, know, you can't just outsource and forget you have to work with these partners to really develop that service and develop a relationship and treat them as part of your team. If you treat outsourcers as outsourcers and forget about them, um, it will never work and you get this yeah. level of service that you deserve. If you treat them with respect, you treat them as part of your direct team. I don't care who writes a paycheck at the end of the month. Now, anybody working in an EasyJet system works for me and works for EasyJet. Um, there may be yeah. someone else pays them, but they're still part of my team. And I think that becomes really important as building the culture and environment that you're operating in. It makes them feel yeah. part of the organization. So when things go wrong, they're willing to go the extra mile and willing to step up and really help you. Um, and that takes time. It takes a lot of investment, um, particularly if you happen to go to India, but uh, it's worth it. Um, and that's where, where we'll head we will go down the route of getting a much more, I guess, designed conscious service uh, set up up front uh, with a smaller number of focus players 
um, and we, and build up that capability and keep my team here really focused on the stuff that really matters to us. Now, when you say my team here, that typically meant the team in, what is it, Luton Airport, yeah. where your, most of your IT uh, teams are. Is that going to change as well? I mean, are you going to, because now you can hire from wherever in the world. You can hire people in, in South Africa working for, for, for EasyJet on a day-to-day -day base and be in your team. Is, is, is that true? Um, that is true. And I, I mean, we have people all over the world working for us now. Um, Mm -hmm. There's something about EasyJet. We are not moving from Luton. Um, and I think part of the culture and part of the, the environment here, and I've only just come back into the office, I've been in the office for the, about two months ago for the first time. I'd worked for the company for six months without ever being in the office, without ever meeting anyone from the company. It was bizarre. But yeah. when you come here, you start to feel part of this, the, you start to get the culture and spirit of the company. When you arrive at an airport, you feel part of that industry. You feel part of an airline. Yeah. Um, and I think that's really important in uh, how do we stand out? How do we attract talent? How do we attract the best technologists and the best leaders and the best project managers in the world? I need the best here to run this airline. And having that sense of culture, that sense of belonging, that spirit, um, becomes really important. It becomes quite a unique identifier, a unique proposition uh, for us. Because otherwise, you could be sat at home, you could earn more money working for financial services at the City of London. Let's not be, you know, they pay more than I do. But I can still attract really great people because of the spirit and the culture and the environment here and what we can offer them in yep. challenge and careers. And that is part of, the, uh, part of what we offer. And so, yeah, we'll keep the core here and we'll outsource um, where, where we can. But I need that core team here. There's something special about airports and airline companies, no? I mean, there's a, there I is. say, a special spirit, then. Eh? Yeah, absolutely. There's, there's, no one ever leaves aviation. It's one of these things. Once you, <laughs> you, you go around in circles with air, airlines, airports, suppliers, service. Once you're in aviation, you get the smell of aviation fuel people tend to stay in it. Okay, interesting. Now let's talk about the role of CIO, about your role. Mm. I mean, you've been in a role for, what is it, 15, over 15 years now. So let's first talk about how did that role look like typically five, 10 years ago, and how does your role as a CIO look today? I mean, what's fundamentally that you're adding to the business? Let's start with how it was five, 10 years ago. Um, how was it five, ten years ago? I think five, ten years ago, it was very much um, you are a service to the business. Um, and it was very focused on just do the technology, the data's your problem. The business wasn't that interested in data. Um, and so it was quite a, uh, I guess, yeah, a service-orientated culture, um, which isn't a bad thing. Um, because historically, IT had a reputation for not being particularly service focused. They were there for the technology. So it was, it, it was about um, uh, particular solutions, put in Oracle, put in SAP, do a bit of uh, the MRO and in, uh, logistics, etc., the sales system. Mm -hmm. I think where the world has shifted and where I see IT now, and actually, um, certainly the last role, Heathrow, and this role, is very apparent. Um, 
50% of my job is running IT and only 50%. Mm -hmm. The other 50% is running the business. So I have an equal voice, an equal say on the executive board. Um, I'm not there just to represent technology. I'm there to represent the company and look after the interests of the company. Um, and that's a very different world to you are the IT service team uh, and you're there yeah. just talk about technology. Come and talk to me about technology. And so the different, there's a very conscious change. Um, the much more interesting one I've got to say as well, uh, because it's no longer IT and the business, it's just we are the business. Um, mm -hmm. The five-year strategy uh, that uh, EasyJet has and uh, through the, the, the main PLC board, 100-odd um, pages, at least 100 out of 110 pages is IT, technology, digital, and data. And so there is no, there is no uh, business strategy without the technology, but then you can't really separate them out either. Yep. So you need your commercial teams and operations teams to be technically literate and tech sav and savvy about the data and how to use the data and what do they want from it? What's the opportunities? Um, and that's where it gets really interesting because uh, you're helping to educate, you're working with really smart people. Uh, we want uh, lots of data, lots of insight, lots of analysis. They want technology. How do we make it all fit and how do we give them these things and those capabilities really quickly and cost effectively. It's about capabilities rather than service and helping them to really exploit those capabilities to for either service or revenue, profit, whatever uh, is a key driver. That's very interesting that you say 50% of my job is IT and 50% is business. Is that also, does that reflect your agenda? I mean, if you, if you look at your weekly agenda, is that where you spend your time as well? It probably is, yes. I spend as much time with my colleagues on the, uh, the executive board as I do with my direct team. Um, mm -hmm. And it's about how do we influence decision-making, how do we make sure we've, we understand the business problems. So as we are coming up with solutions, ideas, it's ahead of the decision. So actually it's influencing that strategy. It's influencing how do you go and approach things. So. The, the, the re-platforming uh, is not me presenting the re-platforming strategy to the board. It's actually my colleagues from uh, the commercial and uh, customer marketing teams um, who are doing the presentation. And they're supporting the technology part of it. But it's part of that whole, we, the three of us are working on this together. And that's how it should be. It's not me saying it's a technology strategy. There is no such thing as a technology technology strategy versus a business strategy. My IT strategy is two pages. That's all it is, it's two pages. And it, it is, when you say that, your reaction is, uh, is similar to most people because everywhere I go, I see 40, 50, 100 page documents from IT about this is a strategy and everything's pedantically laid out. Um, uh -huh. That's not my style and uh, it's, it's two pages. and everyone is starting to get what that means. Um, I, I don't need to explain too much. Very, very, very interesting. Let's talk a little bit about your management style. I mean, I, I can imagine you have a very particular style of, <laughs> of, of uh, creating teams and growing teams and making your team successful. So talk, talk a bit about that. Um, 
it, it's interesting trying to reflect on what uh, on on the how I do stuff, and but I think the, mm-hmm. the the two pages of strategy probably typifies it. Where here's the direction I want to go. This is what I need to achieve. Um, yep. Now you as a team form get really great people in behind me uh, is also key to this. But get great people, pull them together, and say this is where I want to go. They've got better brains and insight and knowledge than that. Come together as a team and take us there. And then trust them and support them and coach them and cajole them sometimes. But it is trusting and helping that team to take us in that direction. And it may not be exactly what I wanted at the end of it, but it's very close. And it's learning how to let go enough to go in the right direction because that is the power of that type of leadership. You don't have absolute control over everything, but by goodness, do you get a lot of stuff done because you've got these teams um, working with you and going in the direction. And I've been in places before where I've had to do all the pushing, I've had to do all the driving, and that is hard work. And you get only so much work done. Um, once you get a great team behind you and really people, people who really believe in what, where you want to go to, and the how, that just amplifies your ability and amplifies your vision way beyond what you could achieve yourself. And so I think over the years, learning how to uh, uh, motivate a team um, it has really paid dividends. I think part of the, the background in my youth where you're doing engineering projects or IT projects, you, know, you have a team that comes together very quickly. You're given, they don't all work for you. You have to then deliver something. So you have to learn how to motivate people who don't directly work for you very quickly. So you learn some of these, or I learned quite a lot of that in my early days, but it really does work. Setting these people up, trust them, send them in a direction and uh, let them get on with it um, and help them when okay. obviously they need help. So you already described your leadership style as well. Now let's let's look at this from another angle. I mean, you worked at a fascinating, of course, at McLaren, at Heathrow. If we would go back to um, uh, your teams there <laughs> and we would ask what kind of uh, leader is Stuart, what do you think that will say about you? Ooh, good question. Um, I think um, Heathrow, um, I think I left a great legacy there. I think I was the, the inspiration for a lot of great stuff that went on there. had a fantastic team. Um, who'd done the work. But uh, it, I think the power is finding what people are good at and letting them go at it and really start driving some of that activity. The whole thing around digital identity and the uh, digital journey. That was one of my middle-level architects who had a real passion for it. Go get on with it. And he drove that and he loved it. And he made world-changing industry-changing developments and pulled a coalition of airlines or agencies together. And so I think people like that respond to get on with it. Uh, and so, the, so I think that's my uh, legacy there is that, yeah, I inspired a lot of great work and a lot of great change uh, and let them get on with mm-hmm. it. Um, at McLaren, it's a bit further, but that's what, six, seven years ago now. Um, it was similar. We made a lot of change. Um, they, they 
the company was going through a lot of change at the time. It was, uh, I joined when Lewis Hamilton was still there. They were still winning races when I joined. Uh, by the time I left, they weren't winning races. Obviously, no, oh, no, 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 <laughs> no coincidence, obviously. Um, but again, we've done great stuff. And uh, finding the role of IT in a company like McLaren is really interesting because you're surrounded mm. by people with fantastic brains. Uh, the, the intellectual horsepower in an organization like that is absolutely phenomenal and really challenging and really inspiring. And so what's mm. the role of IT when you're dealing with, you know, my last year we put in a whole bunch of Cray supercomputers for the, uh, the CFD, the fluid dynamics. You know, the, the, the guys who ran that, every one of them was a PhD in mathematics or engineering. You know, so the role of IT was, you know what, we'll plug it in, we'll put a water pipe up its uh, backside and plug in the power and leave it up to it. These guys were tuning the operating system of the craze depending on the mathematical algorithm they were running that day. So that's the level you're dealing with. But the value we brought was how do we take away the day-to-day -day work from them. How do we take away, the, it's a bit like me now with the system integrators, how do they take away the work that is a drag on me and let my team focus on the real value add? That's what I did with them. So took away backups, take away all the the day-to-day -day stuff that wasn't of value and let those brains work on how do you make the car go faster? Um, and that was really the mantra, the, the, the approach we had is, how do we speed up the car? And it was very clear with these guys, how do you speed up the car? How do we take? A, how do we distribute software around the world? How do we support a team of 60 in a different country every two weeks for a race? You know, we had to run, we had to move a, a mini data center every two weeks to a race, set it up, run it in a sandstorm in 45 degrees of heat, in rainstorms, and put it on trucks, boat, planes, everything. So moving that and running that remotely. And I sent around the world one, I guess, high-end help desk person to run the technology remotely. And we'd done it all remotely. We built it all uh, from uh, the base. So the roles are very different. Um, and so I think we, I brought in there a great team and left a great team behind me. Um, so it's a long-winded way of saying one thing, but I think we did. It's exciting technology. As engineering, it was a fantastic uh, technology wow. environment. Um, and I left, I think, a good legacy of a great team uh, with some good leaders behind me who, uh, who, who were doing great work. Oh, it's clear what drives you in your work, Stuart. I mean, you, you want to make change, you want to get results. Let's take one step back. What is that drives you in your life? If, if you look at it a bit more holistic, what makes you happy when are at the end of the week, the month, the year, you say, well, this was a great week, month or year? Um, uh, I'm actually not too sure. I think what makes me happy is um, when I've done some something, a t usually it's when a team comes together and they're starting to drive towards my vision or the vision that we're all heading towards. When I see them where they become, they're looking after themselves, they're making their own decisions, they're not asking my permission or that they're just getting on with it. That to me is success. Um, and I find that really satisfying because it means I've sold them a vision, they've believed in it, they have the skills and ability and capabilities as a team 
to go and deliver on it. So the organisation around them is working. So just from that one bit, it, 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 there's lots of things have come together. And so I feel, I mean, my I biggest satisfaction over my career is when I look back and I see the teams that I've left and I've moved on still running the way we, I left them and still advancing in their careers because of some, some of the, I guess, what I've put in place uh, in either coaching, helping, organisation. So I guess in reflecting on that, what makes me satisfied is seeing my teams be successful and delivering without coming to me. Um, and that, that is a really nice feeling. Yeah. Now, in our Leadership Deep Dive series of uh, top uh, talent, top CIOs uh, around the world that we, that we interview, we always ask about their personality type, their mm. minds breaks, the MBTI. You shared that your MBTI personality type is ESTP. So you are also known as the entrepreneur. It's somebody who is extroverted, observant, thinking, and has a prospecting uh, personality. Typically, these people tend to be energetic, action-oriented, and they navigate whatever is in front of them, and they love to uncover uh, life's opportunities. Does that sound a little bit who you are, uh, Stuart, already? Um, on reflection, it does. When I first saw that, because uh, that's different to... I've done Myers-Briggs for the last 20-odd years, uh, 30 uh -huh. years nearly. Um, and I think it does describe me pretty well. When I was being an engineer and being, having to be much more detailed and analytical, um, I guess I was much more of the, I guess I've been INTP, I think it was, way back, which is that introverted thinking, more detailed, uh, almost analyst type of uh, world. And I think in the last few years, um, the, as I've come into the CIO and the, I've been able to think bigger and think broader, the, yeah. the natural entrepreneur and natural challenger in me um, uh, has really started to come to the fore. So I do recognise it's different okay. and it's changed over the years. Uh, you were more nerdy in the past. Than it, I'm <laughs> significantly more different. nerdy, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Now, people with your uh, personality type, they have the following strengths. These people are typically very bold, rational, very practical. They can be very um, original. They, they think about new ways to solve problems. They are perceptive. They can put themselves in everybody's shoes. They're also very direct and, and very sociable. Is that, does that resonate with you? Uh, it does. Um, I think it, I'm probably not as sociable as it, as it comes across in the profile. Um, I am quite comfortable in my own skin and my own company at times, but I do like to be. Uh, uh, I do like to mix with people, um, but it's probably not quite as extreme there. But many of the other things I do recognise. Um, it has its downsides as well. Some of those, um, I think, when you you probably are talk we about talk about that. <laughs> Because these are the more interesting ones. <laughs> they are. So uh, let's let's talk about the other side of uh, side of the coin. So people with your personality type, they could have the uh, following weaknesses, development areas, whatever we want to call it. So they can be very insensitive. I mean, they're too much in the head. They're mm. not um, uh, uh, working on the relationship level. Maybe not. They can be very impatient, very demanding. They're sometimes risk prone, so they can take big risks and in, in their way of working. Sometimes unstructured, they may uh, maybe uh, miss the bigger picture as well. 
Let's talk a little bit about your development areas, where you have grown as a professional over the last 15, 10, 5, 10, 15 years. Where have you grown most and how did you do that? Um, I think in those development areas are interesting because um, I've had feedback on those. So I recognize all of them. Um, and I, the way I, there's a couple of things in there. One is I'm conscious of them. So therefore I make conscious efforts to temper my enthusiasm or to ask about people. Uh, the empathy levels uh, are not typically that high in, in me. And it's another reflection of, of the sensitivity piece. And I think what I've learned over the years is to hire people around me who compliment me. So I always, I always need to have someone in my leadership team who's very focused on the people and conscious of the people and the emotional side who will kick me under the table when they need to. <laughs> or um, at the conversation yesterday, I'm in the process of hiring a CTO. I need someone who's going to challenge me and tell me to calm down um, and make sure and reflect on the practicalities of life, not just go charging off. And, and so whatever strengths or weaknesses you have, you, you, can, you can work with them, but you make sure you have a team around you who can compliment you or and temper the, the downside or support you and where you have weaknesses. Because um, at my age, I'm probably never going to learn now a whole, a whole new way of being empathetic that I haven't learned previously. So the way I do it is make sure I've got people around me or yeah. someone to say, well, actually, let's not drive to that end solution straight away. Let's go through a couple of measured steps before we get there and de-risk it. Um, and I've learned to listen to these guys and learn to hire and recruit and retain people like that around me. And you have to learn Let's, to listen mm -hmm. as well. Let's talk a bit more about your personal development, your professional development, because I, I think that, that's, of course, fascinating. And, and so who would you say are important figures in your life? I mean, role models, people that you look up to, people that you learn from, important mentors. Can you, can you share a bit about uh, that? It's, it's interesting because I've never really had a single role model or a mentor who's coached me through my career. Um, what I have done, I've been quite conscious of observing who, who are the great leaders that I have worked for, mm -hmm. who and what's their traits, and also who have been the not so great leaders and what have been their traits. Um, and I think particularly in my early days, the Kimberly Clarks and uh, 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 Pepsi were really good training grounds for that. A, you got really good management development, but also you saw some really great leaders um, and some phenomenal people that you would just go to the ends of the earth for because of their style, their characteristics. So uh, being observant on some of that has been a real help to me. Um, and then when I, it's interesting, when I went to my first CIO role at Taco Brands, um, I was conscious of some of the gaps. So I did actually get someone to coach me uh, for the first year or so and I'd go along once a month. And actually, and that was really a big lesson to me that you do need help and you can't be too proud to ask for help. We all need it, particularly when you step up into that, that first role. I mean, now I actually yep. do coaching for, there's a, a group in London uh, where we, we coach CIOs. With how do you bring the next generation forward? And so we all coach each other's number two, number three kind of level okay, on who's cool. the aspiring 
um, uh, aspiring CIOs because it's tough to get from that number two, number three level to uh, the top level. Um, and that's really successful and I get a lot out of it. And I can see, because I see the mistakes I made in my early career um, uh, and I can help, the, help these uh, people with uh, some of their decision making. Um, and it's just observing who's successful, who's not, who do you respect, who do you not. Um, I mean, the interesting one, everyone always talks about Elon Musk. I actually had dinner with Elon Musk about five years ago. And cool. um, he was on the around the world, but a long story, but um, he, it was just before he'd launched um, the uh, the small car, the sport, the smaller one. They had the big one out, not the S, the, the yeah. S one. Um, he knew absolute pedantic detail, the cost and details of that car. Despite the level he's at, he was down in the weeds and he understood the details of his business. And that's again, something I take because although I've got a great technology team, I need to understand a bit of what's going on. I need my weekly dose yeah. of technology. I can't sit in my ivory tower all, all week. I get really, I get bored. So I need a, and so I do, because I'm interested in the technology. He was, and he was down at the cost and detailed level of his business. And I think that's what really, again, struck me about him, not that he's built the space program and all that, which is phenomenal, but the fact he'd done that and he knows the details of his business. And that's a great lesson, I think, uh, as you get to the higher levels, don't ignore the, 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 the basics of your company and basics of your business. Stuart, do you have a mantra, a saying that you use that, that, that is helpful to you if you, I don't know, have to make difficult decisions or prepare something? The one I use with my team pretty regularly is ask forgiveness, not permission. Um, you have to get on and do stuff. Don't come and ask to, you are the experts in your part of the business, get on with it, mm -hmm. try it um, within boundaries. But yeah, don't come and ask permission to do what you know is the right thing. Just get on and do it and do something is always better than doing nothing. Um, we we'll always go forward. Let's go one level deeper and uh, Stuart and talk more about your personality and let's talk about what drives you, what are your core values? What is it that, I mean, you shared that you have a, a lovely family, you have two sons, 21, 20, 23, grown-up sons. What are the, the core values that you have passed on to them? Um, I'd like to think it's, um, it's about respect, it's trust, um, do what you say you're going to do. So live to your, if you commit to something, make sure you, you do it. Um, enjoy yourself um, is one of the things I've been clear. If I'm not enjoying a job, I'll leave. Uh, I'll find something. Life's too short to do something that is dull or you're not enjoying. Um, and yeah, and so yeah, it's, it's have a it's, it's difficult to articulate, but it's have a, have a good life and be a pretty good person. But enjoy yourself while you're doing it, um, and, and and go for it try things. Um, I mean, one of the things I say to uh, when I'm doing the coaching is uh, make sure you try something. Um, because I think part of part of my experiences has been when things haven't worked or I've, I've not been as great at something as others. And you learn much more from a failure than you do from a success. Um, mm -hmm. So you have to go and try something that's different um, and build your career on 
experimenting and trying and find something that A, you enjoy and B, you're good at. So you say we need to enjoy life. And, and of course, I, I, I can see that you enjoy life through your work. But can you disclose a bit how you enjoy life outside of work? Outside of work? Um, I do a lot of mountain biking. Uh, I live mm -hmm. in the south of England where it's very open, uh, so more cross-country than the extreme downhill. I'm a bit old for the, uh, the big downhill stuff, but I've been to the Alps and the big mountains and stuff like that. Uh, so I do that once, twice a week at least. Um, if nothing else, the evening runs are a good excuse to stop at the pub um, and uh, with, with the mates. So it's sociable and I get a bit of exercise. Um, I do sailing. Um, just had a weekend there in the Solent uh, with a bunch of mates. Um, and yeah, and then being sociable. I mean, that takes up a fair amount of time. Um, I, I used to play golf. That slowed down just again, time as much as anything. Um, but yeah. yeah, I enjoy time with the family and uh, a couple of sports to keep me de-stressed and let me blow off steam when things are getting a bit tough. In your life, what, what is it that you love most and what is it that you fear most? What do I love most? I think the family is probably love most. Mm -hmm. A, I'm healthy um, and B, the family. Um, what do I fear most? It's probably the ill health. Um, I'm still touch wood reasonably fit and healthy and I think being uh, not being able to partake of that I think would be tough mentally on me um, mm -hmm. so yeah so I, I think it's uh, that fear of not being able to go out and enjoy the things I love doing um, is a bit that yeah difficult one that yes, yeah. <laughs> now we all learn from uh, from our successes but we, like you said, I mean, failure is important. And, and, mm. and, and so, and we learn a lot from our failures. I mean, that's mm. how, we, how, how we develop. So could you share with us what this was maybe one of your, your biggest failures ever and, <laughs> and, and what you learned from it? Um, I guess the biggest one was, um, well, long time in fact, it was exactly, it's a, my eldest son was born in the middle of all of this. Um, so 23 years ago, starting up a, a new factory for Walker's Crisp. So I was a project manager. I designed this thing from a blank sheet of paper. I was challenged with a couple of other people. And what do we need to grow and expand? So from a blank sheet of paper, designed a factory, built it, mm -hmm. recruited the team, set it up. And then I ran uh, this factory for uh, the first year of its startup. Um, and I hated it. I loved setting it up. I loved building it. I loved recruiting the team and putting the team in place. Mm -hmm. Running it on a day-to-day -day basis just wasn't me. Um, and I think the... Uh, I, and so because I wasn't enjoying at it, whether it was because I wasn't good at it, I wasn't enjoying it, or because I wasn't enjoying it, I wasn't good at it. But it was a case of after that year, it was said to the boss, get me out of here. Um, and because I'd been there for uh, quite, uh, four or five years by then, they didn't fire me, they moved me back to an engineering job because I fundamentally I was there as a project manager. And because I had something I was good at, I tried something new, something different, wasn't that great at it. So I went back to what I knew I was good at and then became successful again and built the confidence and then, then moved on. And I think the big learning is A, you can have a failure and still succeed. Um, and B, the, the big bit for me was, um, 
there's a big difference between a good project manager and a good operations manager. Running an operation is a very different mindset to running a project. And mm -hmm. as you build a team, and as I build my teams, is making sure you don't just take somebody that are good in the project and get them to go and run service. Um, because you know what, they're probably going to be that good at it. They may do it for six months, they need some experience of it to understand it, but don't expect them to be a rip-roaring success at it. And so that difference in mindset um, was really exposed to me in that. And I know that I'm not great at that day-to-day -day running a service or running an operation. So therefore, make sure I hire the best operations and service managers I absolutely can because then I don't have to get too involved in it. Now, Stuart, if we take a step back, you, you're clearly a very, very success, uh, successful professional, CIO of major brands and companies in, in, uh, in, in the UK. Um, you come from the wonderful and the beautiful Scotland, so you have many, many things going for you. Uh, so, but what is it that you're most grateful for uh, in your life? Um, A, my health, um, my family, and... I guess I, I've been really, really lucky of being imbued with certain talents and skills and capabilities. Um, mm -hmm. And that allowed me to go and do what I've done. Yes, you have to go and develop them and tune them, but I, had, I, I was born with certain skills, capabilities, mindset. My parents supported that. So it's Katie, whatever talents you have is develop them, use them, to the best you can was kind of the, and I'd yeah. been able to do that through some hard work, some luck, some being in the right place at the right time, and sometimes creating the right place at the right time to to make the most of that. Um, mm -hmm. But it doesn't come easy. You have to work at it, um, and you have to develop it, and you have to get help, and you need support, and you have to go and invest in you as a person, invest in you professionally. Um, it's not all handed to you on a plate um, and you have to make some tough decisions and conscious decisions about your career and what is going to drive you forward and what's going to make you happy. If you look back to when you were 25 and, uh, and you look back where you are today, so I mean there's many new insights and knowledge that you have today that you didn't have when you were 25, what would be the one thing the one knowledge or skill or insight that you would give to your 25-year self uh, back in the day so that you say, well, that would have made a real difference. And so, so and, and we can look at it also, what's the advice that you give to young professionals that want to have a career like yours? Um, I think there's two things. One is um, ask for help. I was too independent or too bloody-minded, whichever way you like to describe it. <laughs> uh, uh, and I think my career really took off when I had done the MBA, but then started networking at the professional level. So on a regular basis, into London, typically, and it's, it's a bit new, a bit London-centric in the UK, a lot of this, but um, uh, being able to go to dinner, talk to peers, talk to colleagues at different industries, I learned huge amounts in my early days as CIO about how to be a CIO. What does cloud mean? What does this all mean? How are they approaching it? How are they doing their organizations? From dinners, social events, um, and that's time, that's your evening. Um, but you have doing that 
really step changed um, that, that step changed that career. Um, so ask for help and find coaches and mentors and listen to them because they've been there and, and done. And, and join a good community, right? Absolutely, join the good community because it really yep. does make a difference. And I was a bit late in uh, coming to the, to the fore on that one. Um, and the second one is try things. Uh, don't be afraid to step out of your comfort zone. Um, you have to go and look at different areas, different things, different experiences, uh, but be good at something. Find something you're good at. Then you can go off and try something else. I was good as a project manager. I knew how to build factories. But then once I knew how to build factories, I go and say, well, actually, let's go and see if I can run a factory. Mm, not particularly. Let's go and see if I can run a warehouse. Yeah, actually, that wasn't too bad. Let's kind of do a project in IT. Yes, I can. Can I do engineering and infrastructure in IT? Yes, I can. So it's finding something that you're good at, and then you can go and try many, many different things. Some you'll succeed at, some you'll fail at, you'll learn something every time. On that note, Stuart, I would like to thank you for your time and for sharing all your insights, your experiences, your visions. I was, uh, it's very fascinating. I enjoyed it a lot and hope to, uh, to meet you soon in London when we can uh, get back together. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, Hendrik. I've really enjoyed this. It's been really good. So good to meet you. Thank you.